If you'd open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, as we continue through the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is uh, defending himself against false teachers, uh, people who have risen up against Paul, against the church. He is a true apostle commissioned by Jesus Christ, and so he continues to show the church that he is truly an apostle. He contrasts himself with these false teachers, but he struggles in boasting. He, he doesn't want to talk about himself at all. For the first oh, 50 years of my life, um, most of you know I was part of a community uh, that is abounding in boastfulness. And I say 50 years because my father was a fighter pilot before I was a fighter pilot. And this is a, if you've watched Top Gun or the new Top Gun, most all of it's not right. But one thing they get right is the pride of these men. Um, and really often, if, if you don't have Christ, you would have good reason for pride. Many of these folks are kids who have grown up their whole lives dreaming of flying jets. Um, they could have gone to Harvard or had a, a White House internship, and some of them did. And then they come into the Air Force of all places. Um, I was surrounded by all-state athletes and people who were national scholars and people who maxed out their ACTs and SATs. Um, literally people who were married to Miss America. I knew a man who was married to Miss USA. Like these are men, mostly men, who are at the very top of their game, the top of everything. They've never seen failure, and they're very, very proud, although they hide it. They try to hide it pretty well sometimes. But without Christ, you can see how you would just fall into just an overwhelming sense of your importance and your pride and your occupation. But for God's people, he will not allow us to live in pride at all. Uh, Paul is showing that even the small things that he's telling them about his own life and his own suffering, it's all related to Christ's work. It's all about Christ breaking him so that he might be useful for God's purposes. So with that said, uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Begin reading 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1, and I'll read through verse 10. This is the word of God. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. Please be seated. Let us go to the Lord once again in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word that you have preserved throughout the millennia for us, for your church, indeed for these people this day. We pray that you would open our eyes and unclog our ears and soften our hearts to hear this word, to receive it with joy and to put it into practice in our lives. That you be glorified, that you be honored through the preaching of your word. And please help me as I proclaim your word. Keep me from error. Help me to proclaim clearly and boldly the truth that's found herein. In Jesus' name, amen. My grace is sufficient. That's the title of the sermon. My grace is sufficient. This is a a precious part of scripture because throughout our lives we need God's grace. Some, some of us face overwhelming trials and hardships regularly. Some people in this body face overwhelming medical issues that constantly drag at them. It's hard not to remember people who have uh, suffered some traumatic or chronic illness and they live with pain and suffering every day, wondering, God, why? Why will you not heal me? And often his answer is the same as it was to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul isn't talking from an, a, place of, of, uh, a place where he's uninformed. This is a man who has suffered immensely for the gospel and continues to suffer probably some physical ailment that seems like it will be there the rest of his life. Contrasting himself to the false teachers at Corinth, Paul shows that he has suffered much more than they ever would be willing to suffer. He talks about this in chapter 4 of this letter. That he didn't just endure it, he, he embraces the suffering that God would bring to him. Why? He says in chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning his own body. The treasure meaning the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, and now here's the purpose for all of the suffering, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. This is his his consistent message throughout this letter. 
all of the suffering that I experience, God has brought it to me for his good purposes, that Christ may be seen in my life. This isn't just true for pastors, and pastors must be broken if they're going to be used by God at all. And you've all seen probably uh, prideful Christians or prideful pastors, people who are unbroken. They're just dangerous to be around. They're, they're like unbroken horses. They're kicking every time you get close to them. They're knocking fences over. You, cannot, you definitely can't ride that horse. This is someone who's dangerous. It's a horse like a stallion filled with pride. But this isn't something that just applies to pastors or to Paul. These principles apply to each one of us. If we're to shine brightly for the Lord, we too must embrace hardship because of the brokenness and the fruit that it will show forth for God's glory. And one of the first ways this has worked out in our lives is humility in our speech, in our tongue. This is why Paul hates boasting so badly. And it's the first point I want to make to you is that Paul hates talking about himself. You can just feel it. He goes, I mean, if you read the letter from front to back, he, it's almost like he has to work himself up to this moment in the letter to actually take some, some time to talk about himself. And chapter 12 is about him. There should be no mistake. He hates having to give glory to anyone but God for anything. And why is that? Because he sees himself clearly, as we all should, as a slave who's been redeemed from slavery. He's been purchased with a price. So imagine that. What slave, after being purchased by a master who's loving and kind, with his own blood, goes out and then begins to boast in himself? No, you, you, you boast in the one who has redeemed you. In 1 Corinthians, in the first letter, Actually, the second letter to the Corinthians, but the first one we have. In chapter 1, the very beginning, Paul says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Early in my professional career, I was blessed to live behind uh, a family, um, a a much more mature Christian man uh, than we were. It's our first Air Force assignment. We were in England and our backyards kind of butted up together. And they had children that were young. We had young children. And we immediately hit it off. We were offended by them, though, because their lives were so different than ours. I told Mary Kay, I don't know what it is about them, but I don't like them. What was it? He was a Christian. I mean, I was a Christian, too, but he really lived his faith. Um, I was still struggling through what that was going to look like. I was not as bold as he was. So... Let me, and you, some of you have met this man. His name's House. Um, House has been here to church a few times and worshiped with us. They live in Alabama. Um, House was one of these amazing men that I described. Um, he left the Air Force Academy, uh, graduated, and um, was one of the very first people to go as a second lieutenant a young 22-year-old second lieutenant, straight into pilot training and then straight into the F-15E. The E-model was a brand-new aircraft at the time. This was maybe an 89 or so. Usually when there's a new aircraft, they only take the most experienced pilots and they kind of hand-pick them and put them in this jet so that it doesn't get crashed or something. He was a young second lieutenant. 
And they said, he did, he did that well. Let's put him into the new F-15E. And think of the timing. This is 1989, 1990. The Gulf War happens. Now he's a, a first lieutenant, 24 years old, 25 years old. And now he's flying into combat in this brand new aircraft. And he does great. And then as a young, very young captain, he gets sent to the weapons school, which is like Top Gun, only in Top Gun it's like a two or three week course, maybe a month long. Like that's not real weapons training. Don't tell any Navy people I said that. A real weapons school lasts seven months, and that's how the Air Force does it. He went to um, Air Force weapons school as a young, young officer. So think of this combat decorated war hero, goes to weapons school as a very young man, and now here he is, my backyard neighbor, and I'm just a new first lieutenant. I don't know anything. So I looked at this man and I thought, wow, he's done some things. I bet he's very prideful. He was not prideful at all. God had broken him and humbled him. And I remember being around him um, as, you know, everyone was kissing up to him all the time. He's the weapons officer, the chief weapons tactician in the squadron. So people want to get in good with this guy. And people would talk to him and say, wow, House, that was a great flight. Wow, you did this really well. And his response was always unique and the same. And I'd never heard anything like it. He would always say, glory be to God. They're in a, in a pagan fighter squadron full of professional, um, proud men. And he refused to take any glory to himself. And he always said, glory be to God. Glory be to God. Actually, probably still talks like that. This is the principle that Paul also follows in his own life. Paul will not boast of himself. He hates talking about himself, except when he talks about the weakness that God has brought in his life, because that magnifies Christ. But now he must boast. He must boast in what Christ has done for him and to him. Why? Because he is God's apostle to the Gentile church. If they reject Paul, they're rejecting the gospel. This is critical to this church's survival, and he must do it. He must show the contrast between real apostles and false apostles, and he does that. In chapter 11, he talked about all the suffering that he went through, and now he's, of course, the false apostles, the false teachers. We know from the first letter to the Corinthians They're very fascinated with with spiritual giftings and these kinds of things. Paul says, I'm not going to boast about any of it. I'm only going to boast in the things that show my weakness. Boasting is foolish, he says. It's foolishness. It does nothing. It benefits no one. So considering all that Paul had been through, all of the suffering... Paul boasts in his weakness. Indeed, after all of it, his faith in Christ has never been stronger. On Wednesday, uh, we discussed our assurance, our assurance of God's grace, our assurance of our salvation. And one of the points that we made was that our assurance is usually in our lives never stronger than when we're suffering. And some of you are nodding your heads. You know this to be true. It's the times when you're suffering that God shows himself to you in a real um, palpable way and you know that you're his and you know that he's with you. 
And then as you look back on your suffering, or even in the midst of your suffering, if God gives you the grace to see it clearly, you know it's producing fruit and godliness and sincere faith and holiness in your life. Paul has this attitude as well, and it's all because of Christ. Christ is the one who exampled this. Christ left his glory, we were, we were told in Philippians 2, and he came to earth as a slave. He left everything. And he didn't grasp onto the glory that he had in heaven, but he left it all and rejected that glory to come to earth in human form, in weakness. He boasts now, Jesus does, that he humbled himself even to death on the cross. That's why in Revelation you see this continued picture of the Lion of Judah. That's Jesus, the Lamb that was slain. And right after that, Revelation 5 for sure, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. This is what we worship. Who we worship? The Lamb that was slain. This is our example. So in light of the humility of Christ, our example in all things, and the sanctifying work of the Spirit, Paul refuses to boast except in his weaknesses. He's repulsed by boasting. There's nothing to be gained by it. Our application, I think, is fairly clear. Paul is to be imitated in this inasmuch as he imitates Christ. The gospel produces humble and meek and kind people, people who are not proud and boastful, selfish and rude. Our words reflect our hearts. We've all been around people who cannot stop talking about themselves. It's interesting. Sometimes um, you probably have heard this joke too. How do you know a fighter pilot? Well, don't worry. In about a minute, he'll tell you. It's the same with really all of us. How do you know a doctor? How do you know an engineer? How do you know a farmer? Well, in about five minutes, you're going to know. It's because in us, there's this thing that always wants to boast. We want to talk about ourselves. Jesus says that we have to give an account for every careless word spoken. We need to be diligent to make sure our words reflect our desires of our hearts, which for Christians is to glorify God like Paul, not ourselves. So brothers and sisters, guard your tongues and your thoughts against pride because pride is that original sin. It grows in all of us like a weed. Ugh, our garden. We planted a vegetable garden. Please don't come look at it. Don't. I'm so embarrassed. So I had it all weeded. It looked pristine. It looked great. Not as good as yours probably, but it looked pretty good for a city boy. And I had everything just as good as I could get it. The nice rows. I even have this thing for the green beans to grow up on. I was just so happy that I was able to get it ready. And then our wedding week happened. It was about 10 days where I just didn't touch it. And if you remember, it rained a lot. And I went back over there and a neighbor asked me, what are you growing? And I said, well, I'm growing corn and weeds and grass. <laughs> the weeds just, they just came from nowhere. And the grass, which I thought had been off to the side, is now just spread all through the thing. Well, this is what pride is like in our hearts. If you're not careful, if you're not in the word of God, if you're not striving to fix your eyes on Christ, the weeds of pride and all that it produces grow up very, very quickly. But Paul says he's going to go on boasting 
Because it's necessary to make the church see the difference between him and the false apostles. So there's a folly in boasting that he highlights. But secondly, he highlights a folly of trusting in our spiritual experiences. And the church, as we know, was fascinated with spiritual gifts. Read 1 Corinthians 13, 14, 12. Paul is telling them, he's regulating how they looked at spiritual gifts. In other words, it's not about you. If you've got any gifts at all, it's for the church. And if you're not going to benefit the church, then be quiet. The false teachers apparently had claimed some miraculous gifts for themselves, compared themselves favorably, really, to Paul. Paul's just this little guy. He's not uh, impressive in any way, and his giftings are probably not that impressive either. So Paul is answering this charge to show, indeed, that he's commissioned by God. And the things that God's allowed him to see and do are amazing. They're unlike anything that any of us will ever see or do until we're in heaven. I'm certain of that. So he goes on to say in verse 2, I know this man in Christ 14 years ago who was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. From the context and what follows later, we know Paul's talking about himself. He hates boasting. He hates talking about himself. So he's using the third person. And he's caught up to the third heaven. This is the Greek way of saying where God lives. The first heaven being the sky. The second heaven being space. The third heaven being that mysterious and glorious place where God is. He's caught up to paradise, he says. And it was so real, he doesn't know whether he was physically there or not. He said, in the body, out of the body? I don't know. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And this isn't the first time that Paul's had a supernatural experience with Jesus, with God. Of course, he was... He met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. God smacked him down to the ground literally and told him that he had to serve him. But also in Acts chapter 22 and 26, we read of Paul having supernatural experiences with God. He doesn't want to boast about this, but he has to tell the church because they need to know that he's the real deal. He is the apostle. He cares for them so much that he won't let them fall into some false teaching. He went to the third heaven. But he can't even talk about it. He said, I heard things, or he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. It was so glorious that he couldn't talk about it. And I just will say, as a side note, the next time you hear about a person on a book tour or making a movie about their experience in heaven... Just take it with a grain of salt. It's not the kind of experience that produces book tours and movies. It's the kind of experience that produces humility and a strong hesitancy to discuss it at all like Paul, lest you take any glory for yourself. And we don't need those things. Our confidence is from Christ and His Word. You don't need some spiritual experience to confirm the Bible. The Bible's real and true. It's its own experience. Our confidence comes from the Bible, from the Word of God, impressed on our hearts by His Spirit. And actually, I think I'm going to take a moment, just look at 1 Peter with you. 1 Peter chapter 1, 
Peter talks about an amazing experience that he had. And he makes this exact point. Verse 16, he said, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter saying, I saw it with my own eyes. What did he see? Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You talk about experiences. Peter heard God's voice and he saw the Son of God transfigured before him. That's an experience that no one else could ever imagine. You would think that this experience would give Peter full confidence that everything he had seen and heard was true. But where is Peter's confidence? Well, look at verse 19. He said, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. To put it plainly, he said, I had this wonderful experience, but what I really count on is the prophetic word of God, the Holy Bible. And he's talking about the Old Testament. He doesn't have the New Testament. He's writing the New Testament. The Holy Scriptures. That's where he's... His, his confidence is. That's where Paul's confidence lies as well. And so should ours. We need to be confident in the Word of God. Apart from any experience. Apart from any emotional thing which can deceive you. Dreams or feelings or tinglings. Anything that you do. I went to this altar call. I was at this revival meeting. I felt something special. Those things can all be deceiving you. One thing that cannot be deceiving you is the truth from the Bible. God's Word is true. It's our only confidence. Our faith in Christ, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. So there's a folly in boasting and Paul is also hesitant to boast about his experiences. He sees there's folly there too. This experience I had, I'm going to talk about it just so you understand. God has really called me to be your apostle. But then we talk about, and he begins to talk about, the thorn that God had given him. It's a powerful thorn. Powerful in a good way and powerfully painful as well. Look at verse 7. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. In other words, all that was probably Paul. We know because he's saying, that's why I was given the thorn. Because God had revealed all of these amazing things to me. To keep me from becoming conceited. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. Why did Paul receive a thorn in the flesh? Well, he said it twice. To, be keep, to keep him from becoming conceited. It's his pride. It's the pride we talked about. It's that grass growing into your vegetable garden. It's the weeds that just sprout up without really any effort at all. Paul said to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given 
a thorn in the flesh. Given by who? By God. I remember, uh, I think it was a MacArthur sermon, but he was talking about when Peter and Jesus were interacting and Peter said, I'll, I'll die with you. And remember Jesus said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And if you were Peter, what would you say? You would say, oh, please tell him not to. Tell him not to do that. But that's not what happens. Jesus said, no, after, after you have recovered I prayed that you would recover. You see, God uses Satan like like a beast of burden. He uses Satan and all of his attacks for his own glory and own purposes. And here it seems that Satan was sent, or a messenger of Satan was sent to harass Paul in the form of some physical ailment. Messenger, this is a Greek word, angelos, which normally is translated, what do you think? Angelos, angel. Messenger, angel. An angel of Satan. What do we call angels of Satan? Demons. Maybe this is a demon. We don't know. It doesn't matter. But the point is, God is using Satan to bring an affliction to Paul's life that he's going to probably have until he dies. So Paul had, had been in heaven had seen amazing things and God in his mercy is going to keep him from becoming conceited and he's going to give him a thorn so that he'll remain useful. He crushes him. He sends a thorn. The root of this word thorn is a sharpened piece of wood that's used to stake something down. Of course, it's also just got the meaning of thorn, but this is something very painful some painful kind of physical ailment. And I think it's left vague so that the Holy Spirit can use it as in the widest application for His church. So in addition to everything else he suffered, he's got this nagging physical problem, a messenger of Satan. And this hardship, this messenger of Satan, was for his good. whether it's a hardship from Satan or a result of your own poor decisions, whether it's persecution of the world or discipline of the Lord, whatever the hardship is, our response is the same. We come to God in prayer. We recognize that God can and will use all of our hardships for His glory. This is His purpose. It's not because He hates you that He brings discipline and hardship into your life. It's because He loves you. And this is hard to swallow until you understand God's goodness and His holiness and His desire to give good gifts to His children. Because the effect, of course, is increased reliance on God. It's humility and fruit and trust. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. Have you ever been in a trial and you've seen God kind of work your prayer into different phases of goodness? My first reaction to any difficulty in life is, God, make it stop. Take it away. I don't like it. And then it kind of shifts over time to, God, help me to endure this. Help me to not fall. Help me to be able to stand. And then it transitions later to, God, do your work in my life. 
Be glorified in my life. Whatever it takes, do that in my life. Your will be done. We see this in the prayer of Jesus. We see this in the prayer of Paul. Three times he's pleading with God. And God says, no. No. Why? Because God knows what he's doing and he knows best. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Flip a few pages over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. It's right before the end of the Bible. Hebrews 12. Why does God sometimes say no when we ask Him to take away hardship? In verse 3, He tells us, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility, that's Jesus, against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, And your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as his sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 11, for at the moment discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. You see, the discipline of God was so precious to Paul that he says, this is what I rejoice in. This is what I boast in. When God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul said, yes, your grace is sufficient for me. And Jesus said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul said, yes, I want your power to be made perfect in my weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I boast all the more gladly. I'll close with this before we partake of the Lord's Supper. I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses and insults, hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This should be our prayer as well. How many times do we find ourselves just praying to be away from discomfort? And we're the most pampered people the world has ever known. Our generation. We live in comfort. Paul didn't have flushing toilets. Paul didn't have running water. Paul didn't have medicine. and So many things that we're just easy with. Paul didn't have washers and dryers and dishwashers. Electricity. He knew what suffering was and he said, I want whatever God has for me so that his power can make me strong for his service. We shouldn't be praying for happiness or comfort. We should be praying for God's holiness in our lives. And this is sometimes hard for folks to 
to hear, especially when they're suffering, when they're actually really suffering. And our hearts go out to those who are suffering. And yet when you see a brother or sister suffering well, it encourages you, doesn't it? When you see them giving glory to God. So don't despair, despise the weakness and the suffering that God's given you in this life. He's using it for a wonderful purpose. Don't be like the person in Isaiah who said, my way is hidden from the Lord. In other words, God doesn't see what's going on in my life. My right is disregarded by my God. What's God's response? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He'll never leave you or forsake you, saint. God will always be with you. So strengthen your weak knees and lift your feeble hands and focus your hearts on God. He is for you. He's not against you. He'll not give you one ounce more suffering than you can bear. And he will not use one bit more suffering than is needed to accomplish his purpose. So are you weak from your physical ailments and sickness? You don't know if you can even go another day? His grace is sufficient for you. Or maybe you're agonizing over broken relationships in your life. Your family's disintegrating. His grace is sufficient for you. Maybe you're beset by great temptation. His grace is sufficient. A number of you cannot sleep. You wake up and you're always tired. Brother, sister, his grace is sufficient for you. Maybe you're in financial hardship and unable to see your way through or you're just feeling attacked by the world and the devil. His grace is sufficient for you. Like Paul, turn all your weaknesses and insults and hardships and sufferings and persecutions and calamities to Christ. Remember that your weakness means God's power and you will shine brightly on the backside of this, even now, as you trust in his grace. Let's turn to the Lord's Supper at this time as we consider the grace of Jesus Christ.